I want to be sure and start here before Dina gets here and makes any uh, introductions. Oh, there she is. Right. You just can't, you just can't outlive your past. It comes back and visits you. This is the problem with sin. All right. <laughs> okay, well, boy, I'm breathing more easily after last night. I thought it was pretty tame last night, actually. I wonder if that's due to age. You know, age kind of works both ways. It, 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 um, it takes some fire out of you, but it also takes a lot of inhibitions away from you. And so you can also get uh, raunchier, but last night was great. Thank you for all of you who uh, will, were uh, willingly sacrificial victims. I want to devote my talks in this final message today less to what I have said so far, the maturation of the church in the first 75 years and the ways in which that happened through Christology, through mission, through discipleship, uh, witness, uh, and to think in terms of preparing ourselves to receive the Holy Sacrament of Holy Communion. As we leave from here, we need not simply to be enlightened in our minds, but we also need to be strengthened in our hearts. We're living in times, we've mentioned this throughout the weekend, in great, the week in great flux, and I think that it's important for us to receive from the gospel the sustenance that it offers to us in terms of promise and hope as we enter into our individual calls and ministry. I want to look at two passages. Both of them are from the sixth chapter of Luke. I don't think it will take me very long, and then I'm certainly willing to carry on conversations about anything that you would like once I'm done. The first one comes from Luke chapter 6, verse 40. You may remember that both Matthew and Luke share material in common that we associate with the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew compiles this material and puts it into chapters 5, 6, and 7 as a big united block of teaching. Luke takes much of that material, not all of it, but about two-thirds of it, that appears in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and uses it in chapter 6 all the way up through chapters 15, chapter even a little bit of it in chapter 17. So at many different places, he disperses it throughout his gospel. But the largest single block occurs in chapter 6. And I would like to read verse 40, a passage that, a single verse that is, is frequent. A disciple is not above his teacher, but is perfected, will be perfected as his or her teacher. Now, the first part of this statement, a disciple is not greater than his teacher, uh, is common to Matthew chapter 10, John chapter 13, 
and Luke here. A servant is not greater than his master. Variant of the same statement. But both Matthew and John leave it at that. And it simply becomes a reminder that, that we as Christians should not expect to supersede Jesus. I think we all know that. One of the interesting things that scholars have recognized is that Jesus doesn't expect any successors. The prophets talk about those who will come after them, the kings the same way, the priests the same way. But in Jesus' speeches, he, he speaks as though there will be no successors to him. This is an example of implicit Christology. But Luke, interestingly, does uh, implicit Christology with regard to his, his uniqueness as the Son of God and Savior. But Luke does an interesting thing. He begins this, that a disciple is not greater than his teacher, and then makes this addition. But every disciple will be perfected as his teacher. This word, katartizo, can mean to perfect. It can mean to be outfitted. It can mean trained and shaped and prepared. It seems to mean whatever we do when we train and get people ready to compete in the Olympics. We have brought them as athletes to a certain level of competency and competitiveness that makes them ready for the challenge. And so Luke does an interesting thing here that I think actually relates to what we've said. We've talked uh, for two or three days now on this report echo. Luke tells a story of Jesus doing X, gives us some identifiable clues in what authority are you doing these things and so forth. And then when we read the report or the uh, narrative of the early church, we see those same elements repeated. We've seen those in several, four different ways. You all have recognized them, and these are these conscious echoes of the reports in Jesus' life. And I think in Luke's gospel, he's actually showing that the book of Acts is not simply a sequel that is something that follows the gospel, but it is actually something that reinstantiates it, it repeats, it fulfills in the life of the church that which was, was more perfectly, perhaps, begun in Jesus. But that's what discipleship is. A disciple is not going to supersede his master. We don't ever expect that we will be greater than Jesus. We always think that we will be far, far less than Jesus. And that it would even be presumptuous to imagine that we would begin to rise to his level. We kind of avoid that way of thinking. But isn't that exactly what Luke tells us here? But we will be perfected, outfitted, equipped. 
brought to that competency as our teacher. I would encourage us not to shy away from this, as this, as this is some kind of spiritual pride. Because the very purpose of God's work in salvation is not simply to save our souls. It is not simply to forgive our sins. It is not simply to bring us into a renewed community, although all of those things are true and important. The purpose is to make us look like Christ. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that Christ is the firstborn among many, what's the word he uses? Brothers, siblings. He, we would have expected the word servants, douloi there. He doesn't use this. He uses the word adolfoi, siblings. Well, a sibling relationship is very close to an equal relationship. We know this from 1 John chapter uh, 3, verses 1 and 2. Uh, my friend, says John, we do not yet know what we shall be in eternity. That's true. But we do know this, that when Christ is made known to us, we shall be like him. The purpose of redemption is to restore to us the original image that was distorted and destroyed by Adam. It's nothing less. And Luke seems to grab that and see that is already taking place in our discipleship today. I want only to say one other thing here. And it's how this happens. The remarkable thing to me, equally remarkable with this high estimation, definition of Christian discipleship, being outfitted, perfected, equipped as our teacher, that's remarkable in itself, but I would expect to see some instruction on how that would be. And I would expect to hear something like this, therefore, obey, therefore, serve, therefore, get serious about your faith, therefore, lay aside every distracting problem and become holier. It doesn't say this. There really is no admonition here on what I am to do. This is not a command, become outfitted, become competitive. It's an indicative statement, which means to me that this, in fact, happens through the work of God in my life. And in these passages that we have looked at, the reports and echoes, we don't see the church in act scratching its head and saying, what would Jesus do in this circumstance? I'm not knocking this. There are all kinds of instances in life where we need to recall what Jesus would do, what is the commandment of the gospel, and obey that. It's a perfectly valid form of discipleship, and it's a necessary form. But most of our discipleship is not that conscious. 
And we begin to discover as disciples that when we commit ourselves to Christ and fully relinquish ourselves to Christ, he takes that so seriously that he begins, Christ begins and continues to to embody, to actualize himself in our experiences in ways that we are not aware of at the time. We do not need to be aware of. And yet, our genuine and authentic transformations of our lives to conform to his. I want you to trust that. This is a verse that relieves us of anxiety. This is not a prayer if God will do it. This is a prayer that God is doing this in your life and mine. When we relinquish and surrender ourselves to Christ, our teacher begins the work of equipping, outfitting, perfecting, transforming us to be like him. And that becomes the first and the all-important step that in this life he is beginning that creation of the new life that cannot be extinguished, will not end, will be eternal with him. The second point that I want to make comes, again, from the, second, the sixth chapter, and it's actually the conclusion. It's this story that Jesus tells about um, two people who choose to build houses, one who chooses to build a house on rock and one who chooses to build a house on just the sand. And it begins in verse 46 of chapter 6. Why do you call me Kyrie, Kyrie? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? but do not do what I say. Uh, Just a a moment here of of reflection on this. We live today in an era, it's just happened in the last maybe decade or at the most two decades, and when it's become, in which it has become somewhat fashionable um, to intellectually attack Christianity. We talk about the militant atheists, and they're certainly deserving of those terms, of that, of that term, but it's broader than that because there is now kind of an open season, it seems, on Christianity. People feel freer to, to voice their disgruntlement with the faith than they did in the past. There was a certain respect for the church. I'm surely they, sure that they had disgruntlement, but they didn't express it as freely as they do today. I hear this a lot on a college campus, as you can expect, but you've heard it in your churches as well. In my experience, I don't know if yours has been this, that almost the second thing that comes out of a person's mouth is because of the injustices, and then now we have kind of this litany. What, are, what kinds of things do we hear? Crusades. The Crusades. Inquisition. What? The Inquisition. What? Slavery. Slavery. Yeah, hypocrisy, sure. Um, siding with the Nazis. So we have this litany of things, and are these things true or false? 
in certain respects are true. Of course, in each one of those instances, there were lots of also instances where in slavery, Christians did great things, but we don't hear about that. And so the point is that people, in fact, are opening fire on us. Perhaps we deserve it. I'm sure we can find ways to see this, give opportunity for witness, because we have called upon the name, but we have not lived by the faith. And insofar as that is the case, we deserve the medicine we're getting. Jesus has warned us of this. Part of the reason that the Christian faith is opposed today is because we have Christians and our history has poorly attested to our Lordship of Christ. But I don't want to go any further on that. We know that enough. Verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them There's three words right there that you can make a great three-point sermon on. Coming to Christ, hearing Christ, doing his will. They're all necessary. We can't do his will unless we know his will. In order to know his will, it must be proclaimed. But we can't hear his will until we come to him. So we have the relational, we have the verbal, and we have the behavioral. This business of discipleship, calling Jesus Lord, Lord, encompasses the whole person. The only thing that's left out here is our feelings, which is what all of our parishioners want to reduce Christianity to to immediately. We're not told how we have to feel about Jesus. I'm so grateful for that. (laughs) I can't control my feelings, but I can certainly control my coming, my hearing, and my behaving. And I will show you what this is like, says Jesus. It's like a man who built a house. He dug, he sank a pit, he placed a foundation upon the rock. There's a person who digs down to that which is immovable and solid and builds a foundation. When you build a foundation, you're putting all this work and effort into something and there's nothing to show for it. It looks like it's wasted effort. You have no superstructure. People can't see anything. You're just putting money in a hole. Then the floods came. And the river rose and hit that house, but that house was not able to be shaken because it had been built well. We're not told anything about the superstructure. Is this a one-story house? Is this a split-level house? Is this the World Trade Center? We don't know. I don't care. Point is, it has a foundation, and that foundation allows the house to withstand whatever happens. But he who hears, the person who hears, 
and does not act likewise, that is to say, to dig deep, hit the rock, and build a foundation. It's like a person who builds a house on the ground without a foundation. The river rises, and immediately that house is swept away, and its crash, its collapse, its fall is great. So we are all going back to our contexts, our churches, uh, me to uh, the enjoyment, but also the, the tensions of a, of a university community, how to bear witness to Christ in this setting, you and yours. They're all challenging settings. And it's easy to be anxious. I want you to hear this word today as a word of encouragement. You don't have to worry about what's happening in the future and what's going to happen. You must go from this convocation this week with confidence that your life is rooted in Christ. Your house is built on a firm and sure foundation. And that you need not be anxious and I need not be anxious about what may happen. We cannot control what may happen. We cannot foresee most of what happens. And even when we do foresee what happens, we often misjudge it. Some things looming before us look like they're going to wreck our ship, but don't. Other things looming before us don't look like they're serious obstacles at all, and yet they are. There are, of course, things that we do need to attend to. If you're kayaking down a river and you see a big rock in front of you, you need to change your course. If I'm into conflict with my wife, or with my church, or with my relationships, I need to change my course, because I know darn good and well, we all do, that this is going to lead to trouble and maybe disaster. But those are the exceptions, they're not the norm. Most of what lies in the future is either unknown or imperceptibly perceived by us. And this is why Christianity is not a utilitarian decision. A utilitarian decision means that I look to the future, I see what I need to, I make certain predictions, and I change my actions on the basis of those. It's not that. We are not stargazers, we are not future predictors. We live in the present. Because our house is built on the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. And consequently, we can be free of anxiety. We do not need to know what will happen because we know that when it happens, if it happens, that Christ will give us grace at that time just as he has in the past and is now. 
So as you receive the sacraments, may you truly surrender all anxieties, conundrums, fears to him. Receive by faith his word and his body and blood, for it is our one and sure hope in life and in death. Now I'm going to stop there. We have 30, 25 minutes, and we can uh, we could do lots of things. We can certainly uh, have a conversation. I'm willing to do that if there are aspects of what we have talked about this week that you would like to ask about. If there is uh, perhaps something that you would like to share with the group, that would also be appropriate. If you're sensitive to the time length in which you make that. Um, and then we will move on to the uh, the communion service when we're done. David. Just kind of varying what you've done with what Carol did. I'm curious, did Jesus quote more or equally from Moses, the Torah, and or Isaiah? Um, there are more quotations from the prophets in the New Testament than there are from the Torah. Thank you. And of the prophets, Isaiah is the most frequently quoted. It's the biggest. Um, you also followed up saying if there's something we want to share, I would just covet the prayers of my brothers and sisters uh, for a custody hearing for my granddaughters this Thursday. It's very important that they thrive and stay with uh, my son, but it's never sure and wild, but uh, we love them, they're our heart, and I would ask you to please pray for real wisdom and insight for the judge who will decide. Um, we see real disaster if they are not um, allowed to stay. Thank you. So please pray for the Children of David Freeling on Thursday. Yes. This uh, the is this book you're writing kind of in this uh, report echo nature of Luke and Acts then currently or going to write then? No, I'm not working on that. Okay. Um, I. I really, um, I like this idea a lot. I've written an article on it, but I've said as much as I've wanted, but I found that this, this has lots of um, serviceability in talks. I talked about this earlier this year, and it went well, and I think this, this helps us realize that there's this wonderful continuity between the gospel and the church. And I think we oftentimes don't have any problem believing that God is at work in Jesus Christ. We accept that. We have a much harder time with the transfer into our own lives in the church. We tend to be pretty skeptical of that. I think we need encouragement in that. And I love the way Luke does that, so I'm enjoying sharing that. But this is just a talk. It's not going to be a book. Have you found that uh, 
I would, I'd be surprised, but maybe there's. Have you found there's kind of like a one-to-one, like a, an act or a, a word by Jesus, and we see it appear in Acts? That no, it's that? not that. It's not that uh, mechanical or arithmetic. Okay. Um, and we would certainly understand that. Uh, that would, in fact, if that were the case, it would probably discredit the entire account. It would show that he's he's um, consciously uh, producing. A, uh, history rather than faithfully reflecting one. But I, Luke does want to show that in certain seminal ways uh, the, the, the experience of the church mirrors either closely or less closely that of Jesus Christ. And he wants to, he then tells those two stories in a way that we as readers, if we are perceptive, can see the relationship between them and ponder that relationship. Over here, Scott. Yeah, he's gone through a name change. Thank you. That was fast for me. I I want to go back to uh, some of the references Jesus made at his resurrection appearances about about the scriptures. Uh, and him being able to talk about this, the, the fulfillment of the scriptures about his suffering and death. And um, boy, you just, you just wish you were there or someone was recording what was said in that road to Emmaus, seven mile trip, two hour or whatever talking, but we don't have that. So can you just maybe, I mean, we, we obviously have the Isaiah 53 passage, but can you maybe help us think more about what, could he have been referring to right. when he was talking about those scriptures? The suffering? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thanks so much for this. It's a great question. And I think the way we answer it is really important. Um, so Scott is re- referring to the fact that Jesus in the walk to Emmaus, but the, old, the, entire, old, the entire New Testament does this. They, they refer rather glibly from our perspective that the Old Testament teaches that the Messiah must suffer. Why don't you see it? And yet when we read the Old Testament, we don't see it. And you, we need to take our own experience seriously because one of the reasons why Jewish people have such a difficult time believing in Christ is because they do not see the Jesus of the Gospels as being either an adequate or a necessary reflection of the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. If this were so obvious... I'm pretty convinced many, many Jews, if not the majority of Jews, would have become Christians. I think that Jews look upon us as Christians much like we Christians look upon Muslims. Muslims claim to stand in continuity with the Old Testament we don't claim to see that continuity very clearly at all. In fact, we see it so 
unclearly that it's very easy for us to simply dismiss them as a fraud, as mistaken, in any number of ways, but the dismissal is secure enough that we are not bothered by it at all. I don't think that many of you lose much sleep asking the question, boy, I wonder if the Muslims have gotten it right and we Christians have gotten it wrong. I doubt that you do. And I don't think that Jews lose a whole lot of sleep thinking, boy, I wonder if those Christians got it right. We've gotten it wrong. One of the reasons that Jews, one, not the only one, but an important one, is exactly the point here that Scott's raising. They really don't see Christ very clearly or necessarily adumbrated in the Old Testament. And yet, Jesus and the early church do. And I, I think that when we answer your question, we need to make a composite answer. There are passages, you just mentioned them, like this Isaiah 53 passage, that are so clearly anticipatory of Christ that it's really hard to imagine that this could anticipate any other figure in Israel than Christ. And now Jews themselves will recognize that and admit that. And I told you that this Jewish professor in Tübingen absolutely said this. He wasn't a Christian at all, but he simply said, you guys have all the numbers in your account on this point. But it's bigger than that. Remember in the Old Testament, how is sin adjudicated? Answer, there must be the slaying of a live and unblemished animal. Well, that's suffering. In fact, that's not just true. In Judaism, all ancient authors, uh, all, all ancient altars were nothing more than chopping blocks. They were places where animals were killed. In the emperor cult, the magna mater cult, all of them. You, if you have an altar, and all of the religions had them, Isis has an altar. Mithra has an altar. They slay a bull on that Mithras altar. That's a huge expenditure, a bull. That's like wrecking your car. So all of these religions see this, and so a person like Clement of Alexandria comes along and says, see, God is even preparing the pagan world to receive Christ, as well as the Jewish world, because of this animal sacrifice, which is present in both traditions. But we also see, especially in the prophets, but also in the Psalms, we know that the greatest number of Psalms belong to what category? Laments. Oh God, oh God, I am sinking into the mire. This this necessary suffering and the prophets as well. Jeremiah becomes much more than any other prophet. We would think it might be Isaiah, but Jeremiah becomes more than any other prophet after the exile. The one figure in Israel who best, most clearly uh, impersonates the spirit of Israel. Why? Because he's the suffering prophet. 
the New Testament writers look back and they see it's, it's written on the wall that God is going to accomplish his victory in this world through suffering. And the Messiah will be the preeminent expression of that. And I think when we read the Old Testament from that perspective, we can see they were right. Although it may not be just written in obvious letters, it's probably slightly below the surface, but it's there. Do you want to say anything more? There's also all these references about <clears throat> oftentimes people are unable to see. They're, they are purposely kept mm. blind mm. in many right. cases until God chooses to reveal, open their eyes and hearts like they did, like Jesus did. And just, it, are we in that season yeah. of not being able to see what's actually there? Right. No, this is so, so good. Um, Even if it were clearer, and we may wish that it were, it would never just be this inevitable, irrevocable slide into faith. Um, Christianity is not like the merging lane onto the freeway. It just, you get on this lane and it's going to take you onto the freeway. Doesn't matter how fast you go or how slow, you're, you're, that's where you're going to go. No, it's not going to be that way. It's never just inevitable that but somebody comes to faith. This must be a choice. And it's a choice upon two things, of me seeing and also God opening my eyes to see. We've seen that in a couple of instances in the stories that we've told. And so this is why when you and I preach, when you speak, we're always praying two things. Lord, help me to be the best expositor I can of this truth. And may you open people's eyes through the Holy Spirit to its significance for their lives. And when we preach from Scripture, when Scripture becomes the backbone of our work, we can, we can have confidence that both of those things will be true. Jim. Um, I recently read some article, and it talked about us being in, you know, the... Western civilization, but USA, post-Christian, post-modern, and now post-rational culture. <laughs> and I think about the, the, the Christian faith, it, Protestant Christianity being a word-based and, and something that, that it really engages with reason, being an important part of our, how our faith is transmitted. Catholicism in its earlier stages seemed a little more, uh, you know, Nonverbal. There was it was experiential. It was image based, and I'm I'm kind of curious whether you agree that we're because you know what I see in the cultural dialogue. It's kind of about image and um, uh, experience, and uh, not necessarily reasoned, thoughtful debate and argument about what's true, what's false, what's real, what is good. But it's sort of feeling based. So I right. I wonder if you agree with. Are we in a post-rational culture? And then what does that mean for us who are word-based pastors? I mean, we are a very word-based church and word-based pastors. We have sacrament, but boy, we're about the word. Any thoughts on that? Well, I have a lot of thoughts, right. And I, and I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, that, uh, let me just say one thing. Uh, 
uh, I think that the ultimate work of the evil one, the devil, um, is to make us go mad. Now we see that in, uh, for example, C.S. Lewis's book, uh, That Hideous Strength. You start off with this rational institution, the, what's it called? That's, oh, the NICE, that's right, the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments. <laughs> right, the word NICE isn't in the New Testament, it's in that hideous strength. And this is a totally rational institution, bloodless. They get Mark Studdick in there and they twist him and distort him and he becomes this freaking crazy. But nobody's as crazy as Wither. Wither never sleeps. Wither's pale. His eyes are barely open. Wither doesn't have any blood in his veins. He's this freaking idiot. And so you have this total lockdown rational evil. And what happens? It becomes just madness. And at the banquet of Balberry, all hell breaks loose and it's a, it's a hilarious scene because it's the absurd end in madness. Now I don't think we're quite there yet. But I do think that madness is one of the ends. Lewis also dealt with this at a, premier's, a prior state, and he deals with this in the silver chair. And remember, we have the situation where the green lady has the people underground, and she says, you know, there, there is no above ground. All that there is is this cave. And you, and of course the marsh wiggle says, no, no, I've seen the sunlight. I've walked among the trees. It's nice up there. And she says, no, you're, you're making this up. Uh, and I have some... I have some uh, uh, sympathy for that because Dean and I worked at a school for a long time, put a lot of our lives into it, and we tried to have a Christian institution or tried to introduce a Christian institution somewhat like Whitworth, and I would say, you know, I went to a school that, where we did these things, and my faculty would say, no, those kinds of schools don't exist. <laughs> and I would say, no, I, I went to one. Well, that's how you remember it, but you weren't on the faculty, and that's not what it was. And I heard this for 19 years, and I, was, I, I always felt like I was the marsh wiggle listening to the green lady, and she was winning the argument. And she is winning the argument. Remember, she starts lulling this, and what do people do, friends? They start to become drowsy and go to sleep. And of course, the more drowsy they become, the more effective her propaganda becomes. And what happens? The marsh wiggle finally throws a tantrum. And he stokes up the fire with his foot, and it burns his foot. And the smell <laughs> of burnt marsh wiggle, that's a suffering image, brings the group to their senses. Damn, they say. He's right, the marsh wiggle's right. This woman has been lulling us to sleep. So what's Lewis's point there? Reason. Reason is our strongest argument against this myth of evil. This is what Hans Scholl does with the white rose. This kind of evil is not going to be overthrown by just more muscle. But by truth and beauty, you're going to have to have a different weapon. 
So I think we have to be attentive to those things. They're really part of our ministry because they are windows and avenues of salvation. But the madness, the irrationality is absolutely true. Uh, I was listening to an article, or actually listening to a news thing uh, two weeks ago about the slaying of the rhinoceroses in, in, in Africa. These beautiful, not, they're not beautiful, but they're, they're, well, they're just big, and they, they ought to live. But they're being shot because of what? Their horns. And there is this belief that this horn is an aphrodisiac. And is a healing. And the new, they told me this, uh, you won't believe this, uh, it doesn't seem to be believable, but they said, this is the single most valuable substance in the world. They said, this industry of Weiner Horns is an $18 billion a year industry. Not million, billion, that's a thousand million. And the guy who's doing this said, if these rhino horns were of diamonds, they would not be worth as much as this. He's saying this. This is a scientist. And this is why these poachers, they won't stop because there is so much money behind them. If the government tries to stop them, they just shoot you. This is a war. And then this scientist says this. Here's the thing that's the greatest tragedy about this. There is no scientific evidence at all that this is an aphrodisiac or any kind of a curative. And you throw up your hands and you say, we are slaughtering these animals, $18 billion. How much money is that? I don't know how much money that is. I can't even begin to think how much money that is. For a totally senseless purpose. This, in the post-enlightenment world in which we are supposed to be bright men and women, man, don't think for a minute we're the age of rationality. What's that? Don't vaccinate your kids. <laughs> David. Yeah, Jim, uh, in regards to suffering, I'm curious, uh, you never mentioned Jesus telling people, pick up your cross and follow me. Was there a reason for that? And can you kind of elaborate what you feel that really means? <laughs> this is the second day I've been taking a task for not preaching much on, enough on suffering. Um, <laughs> I, I think when I talked about martyrdom yesterday, I was certainly implying that this involves suffering. Forgive me. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think that that statement is absolutely essential to take up my cross. For me, this is the, this is the beauty of Bonhoeffer's understanding of martyrdom. Just to repeat it once again, we tend to think of martyrdom as the capstone course <laughs> of discipleship. We tend to think of martyrdom as the graduation exercise <laughs> into the kingdom of God. We tend to think of martyrdom as the last event or episode that we might uh, do to show Christ our faithfulness. And Bonhoeffer rightfully says it is not the last. It's what? The first. It's what we do when we become a Christian. And if you don't do it, you're not a Christian. It is to say to Jesus Christ, you are Lord. 
And you cannot say, you're Lord, and then make yourself Lord. These are incompatibles. And Jesus tells us that the cross means I must deny myself. It's an instrument of death. A cross uh, wasn't a, a paddle that spanks you. It was an instrument of death. Nobody that we know of survived the cross. And Jesus, in using that, says you must die to self and come to us. Come to me. Once then we are free, then whether we give our body in uh, physical martyrdom or some other martyrdom is really not the essential issue. G.K. Chesterton says, and St. Francis says, the, the martyr is the martyrdom of my soul. And Jesus does this too. Where do we see his martyrdom most painfully lived out? It's not on the cross. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. There it is Jesus fighting with God like he never fought before, sweating, Luke says, drops of blood. Here is the struggling Christ who's profoundly human, who says, I do not want to do this. When he goes to Golgotha, there's no struggle at all. It's simply a description. So you and I are taking up our cross right now It's happening right now, today. And I'm quite convinced that you may look back onto this hour, even in your hour of death, and say, what I went through in 2015, what I went through in 2012, whatever, was harder than this. One more comment, and I think we're ready for our service. One comment, then, like a two-part question. I've got a friend that's the head of the Humane Society in, in the state of Oregon. He sent me a picture of a rhino that had its, its horn cut off mm. and survived. Yeah, they cut him off with a chainsaw. Unbelievable. Um, The, the knee-jerk reaction toward triumphalism um, seems to be a part of our human nature. Um, and when Jesus begins to speak parables, particularly in Mark, um, that's where my head is right now, it seems like he's, he's trying to describe that, that he is the suffering Messiah and prepare the disciples for that. Can you comment on the use of the parables in con conveying the centrality of the cross in the gospel? Hmm, the use of the parables in portraying the cross. Is, is that one of the reasons why he uses parables? Because he's trying to explain stuff that is simply beyond our categories. Well, I agree with that. I think that the parables are an attempts to get us to see things that are, are, are true, but we can't see. But the parables are usually more than the cross. They're about the kingdom of God. The fact that, that God is breaking into our worlds in ways that we cannot see. 
Uh, and so they're on a really a bigger area or a bigger canvas landscape than simply the cross. I don't mean to obviously say that the cross isn't important, but they're, they're about helping us to get away to see reality. This is why C.S. Lewis loves the parables, because he's interested in this big picture. This is why Edward Schweitzer loves the parables. He says, Jesus is the parable of God. His life is the parable of God. We see the kingdom of God in his life. And so I think that the parables almost always are trying to open our eyes to the bigger reality. That there really is a God and he breaks into this world in surprising ways. And these everyday analogies that Jesus gives of, of women looking for coins and lost sheep and a farmer sowing seed in very unpromising conditions these are all easily receivable analogies of this mystery of the kingdom. And, of course, the heart of that is the cross, the incarnation. But I think the parables are interested in the, the big landscape. Let's close in prayer. For the gift of this week, O oh God, we give you thanks. We pray that your presence with our families and our congregations was as real and effective as it has been with those of us who have been granted the gift of this retreat at Mount Hermon. The fellowship that you have given to us over decades, the prescience and the insight and the courage that it took those young uh, men and also women to start this 40-some years ago, the faithfulness with which it's been done for Troy and for John Moser have worked hard to ensure that this is a viable uh, setting for the, the furtherance and the strengthening of Christianity in our country. And so we thank you, Lord. Uh, we don't come here with a list of anxieties. Uh, we're, we're not filled full of griping and whining and complaining why you haven't done this or that. Our hearts are filled with gratitude for your faithfulness in the past and with trust that you who have been faithful have called us to a good work and you do not call us to failure. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray gratefully. Amen.